1 Timothy chapter 5 today. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 5, doing our lightning fast cruise through the Apostle uh, Paul's letters. We're past the book of Acts and the story. You want to know the story? I love biography. I want to know the person's life and what they went through. You're past the biographical stuff in Acts. We don't know what was going on uh, much in Paul's life where he's writing uh, the concluding letters. But, I mean, at least we don't know from the book of Acts, but you can kind of glean some things. I think 1 Timothy sort of represents, um, well, 1 and 2 Timothy together kind of represent the handing of the baton. It's toward the end of Paul's ministry and he knows it. It's not up there. Thank you. Toward the end of Paul's ministry, Paul knows it. And he is setting Timothy up for the continuation of the project. And remember, the Apostle Paul is the Apostle to the Gentiles, so that means everybody that's not Israel. And he is going throughout the Gentile world, remember, starting with the Jews everywhere he goes, starting in the synagogues to preach Christ from the Old Testament, and always having a few, a remnant who will believe, and the rest who reject and then oppress him. And then he goes from that base of just a few to the local Gentiles and has a bigger harvest, plants a church, plants multiple churches. And so he's going through the Mediterranean world, the Roman lake in the Roman empire, through all these Roman roads, the internet of his day. And we get some of the intricate details of what this looks like in the pastoral epistles in first and second Timothy and Titus. And so as we're winding down our study of the life of the Apostle Paul, we're learning about the life of the local church, which is Paul's planting project, what it's supposed to be like, how are we supposed to conduct ourselves. And there's so much wonderful gold in 1 Timothy to tell us how we should be, what, what we should be like as a church family. For example, in 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is what? What is all the teaching for? The former pastor of this church once did a message, once, once all has been said and done, what has been said and done? What, what's all the talking for? What's all the preaching? What's all the teaching? And whatever way you do instruction, puppet show for little children, coloring sheet from the craft department, whatever it is you're doing, what is the goal of our instruction? Agape love. It's, a lo it's love. It's God's love expressed through us. It's a supernatural goal from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. That's, that's the goal of our instruction. And that love comes from a pure heart, from a heart that is saturated with God's word, a clear conscience, a heart that is within its conscience clear, with, clean, clean, self-examination, 1 Corinthians 11, confession, 1 John 1, 9, if needed, clean conscience and a sincere faith that I don't just do this because we're, we, this is what we do and I'm going through the motions. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and I'm believing now in this moment. I think sometimes we, for, we fail to remember to be in the moment. That's a big phrase people use, but I think it's kind of an effective thought. If you're people oriented, then between visits with people and your personality, you can just kind of drift. If you're task oriented, then when there are people in the way, you kind of have to put on a face and deal with people because you want to get back to your tasks. Lots of ways the world talks about our personalities and the way we deal with things. But in this very moment, am I trusting in God? Am I believing in Christ as my savior? I know one way we, we're sure we're not trusting in him is when we're worried about some loss we might suffer. When we're afraid, again, of loss. When we're 
sinful, largely because of worry, fear, or anger. These introductory, these gateway sins that get us into uh, a walk according to the flesh, functional spiritual death according to Romans chapter 8. In this moment, now I'm a believer, right? But in this moment, are you trusting him? That's the reality of the Christian life. And it's calling, it's a call for consistency and Christian character. But the goal of our instruction is love. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts. The love of Christ revealed through us. The fruit of God, the Holy Spirit, that if you abide in Christ and he in you, you'll bear much fruit. For without him, you can do nothing. Not what humans think love is, but what God thinks love is. Not what humans can do in their own energy of the flesh, but what God produces through us. That's the goal of our instruction, love. And it's so far from mere human affection. Does it involve how you feel? It absolutely involves how you feel. Is it summarized by a feeling of affection towards someone? It is not. It is not at all. You know, in the moment that you might be in, if you're dealing with someone that you love, that Christian disregard of self and concern for God's interest on behalf of the other, that self-sacrificial giving to the other, that might manifest itself as something very different from affection. It may not be the thing needed in the moment. It, it may be a moment of correction. It's hard to hug your children while you're spanking them. In fact, it's an absurdity. The spanking, then the hug. My point is simply that if we are in the word as we should be, then what God does with us in our hearts as a consequence should be this expression of the love of God, the self-giving love of God. And I believe the best picture of this love that we're going for is John three sixteen. The most quoted verse, though all everybody knows the Christians are all about John three sixteen. But if you think about applying it to yourself, like Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 say, say be imitators of God as beloved children. And so walk in love with Jesus is the following verses. Jesus as your example who gave himself. The, the, John 3.16 isn't just for unbelievers that you need to believe that Jesus died for your sins. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's for you, heirs of God. Become an imitator of God and so give what the other needs. As God says, they have the need. Finally, on this little homily on love. Christian love is not asking the person what do they want and then providing it. Christian love is not Santa Claus's list. Make your list and then we'll give you what you want. That's not Christian love. And you believers, you have dealt with people who are troubled, who are wanty often and not necessarily needy. We're spoiled people in our time and all the things. You understand that sometimes what the person wants is the opposite of what he or she needs. Someone very, great example, someone very ill who's not accepting the fact that he's ill. He's not accepting the fact that, that he is in a condition that requires long-term care and assistance. Very common theme. I get to the point where my body, I can't do it anymore. My brain says, get up and walk, but I can't do it. I can't get to the bathroom. I need someone to help me. Well, I don't want anyone to help me. I want to be left alone. That's private. And I don't want anybody messing with me about my private business. I understand that's how you feel. But what you need is someone to clean you up. That's what you need. So am I going to do what you want? Or are we going to provide as beloved children what you need? 
as a point of application on this, if you love your children, prepare your hearts now for care that you're going to need when you can't care for yourself anymore. Prepare for that now. Humble yourself now. It's coming. It comes for all of us. Unless we die before our body fails and we die of natural causes, you are going to need someone to clean you up. So please prepare for this in your heart. Accept the fact that no one wants to invade your privacy, but it has to happen. And love your children enough to disregard yourself and just let them take care of you and appreciate the love they're extending. It's a hard thing as we age. And I've, obviously I'm seeing this a lot, a lot. I see this in many, so many different lives because every one of us is gonna to get to that point. So is love expressed by the children and saying, okay, they don't want any long-term care. They don't want anyone coming over. And then you find them on the floor. The life alert didn't, uh, they didn't wear their life alert that day and they're, they're on the floor having been in agony with a broken hip for three hours. Or before we get to that point, do we love you by setting you up with something that is helpful? And I mean, loving, not, not lock you away and forget about you, but have someone there to help you. What's, what's love is the question. This is the goal of our instruction that we would love First of all, God, our first love, and then one another. And disregard ourselves and see what God wants the other person to have and then give it to them. Many things we could say about love, but uh, just a reminder of what this is all about. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 22, you have instruction, more instruction about the uh, treatment of elders in the local church. In chapter three, we were told what the elders are supposed to be like. In chapter five, we're told how the congregation is supposed to relate to them or how the congregations are supposed to relate to them. It'll be uh, conspicuous now that we're gonna talk about elders in the plural. And the question becomes, should churches have plural elders or single elders? And there are a couple of places where it really seems that in one locality, you have multiple elders but it doesn't seem like that it has to be multiple elders. That's the first thing. And the second is that we don't know how many local assemblies we're talking about. You don't know, I mean, Ephesus is a big place and I've always wondered about this, the church in Ephesus, we think that means like the church in Preston, well, which one? Was there only one group of Christians in Ephesus by the time Timothy is going to these people? I mean, it's possible, it's a big place. And so um, I think we always assume that, but uh, I hope you understand what I come down on with elders. The struggle I have with plural elders is first Peter chapter five, verses one through four, where the apostle Peter identifies elders as those who pastor and they're also the overseers. It's all three in first Peter chapter five, verse one through four. So because Ephesians 4 describes pastor as a gift. 4.7, Ephesians 4.7, everyone has a spiritual gift. Ephesians 4.11, some were given as pastors and teachers. I struggle with the lay elder, the elder that is not gifted as a pastor. I don't understand how you can have what Peter says and what Paul says. And then, and then we just have elders that aren't shepherds by gift. I, I don't understand it. And so being a pastor, having been designated here as office of elder, as overseer, um, I don't have a problem with plural elders. I have a problem with elders that aren't pastors. I don't understand. And, and I could be completely wrong about this. I could be, but this is where my, my it's what something's kind of sticking in my throat. Those that'll say, no, 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 no. They basically disregard pastor as a gift in Ephesians 4. I can't do that. So anyway, I think you have as many elders as you have. And I think it's a description of maturity, but also here of office. The elders in New American Standard says the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. 
I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. The next section is where Paul tells Timothy to take a little wine instead of just water. We'll save that. We'll do a whole series on that one. Just kidding, but we'll, we'll catch that next time. All right, so let's dig into it a little bit. The double honor concept in verse 17 of 1 Timothy 5. He says, hoi kalos prostotes. He says, those literally the good leading elders. Kalos, good or well, or be actually beautiful, attractive. Those who do a beautiful job of leading is what it means. I should probably paraphrase it that way in my translation. Proestotes is proestemi. And this is so interesting to me. It's a consistent way Paul describes the leaders, the leaders in the, in the local assembly. Pro is before. Everybody with me on before, like pro is a pronoun, is a, 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 um, an, affix, an affix at the beginning that in English means before a lot of times. Um, Progonosco is to foreknowledge, foreknow, to know beforehand. But histemi, it means to stand up, to stand in place or to place. So it means to stand in front, to stand before. That's the, what we call the etymology of the word. It comes from this idea of standing in front. Standing at those who stand in front. So this is why we don't stand behind you and preach. At the backs of your heads, we stand in front. <laughs> Just kidding. But, um, but prostami, that, that, that word origin of to stand in front in, in Koine period means to lead. Could also mean to, to render aid or care, to concern yourself for someone. But in this, in this use, we're thinking it means to lead. And um, that could mean rule, but I think when in our English today, we think of rule as, as d issuing dictates from somebody's uh, position of supreme authority to rule. This is better those that stand in front and lead. Um, at the infantry school in Fort Benning, there's a, uh, there's a statue of an, of, a, of an infantry soldier, I believe a World War II infantry, infantry soldier. He's got the steel pot helmet and he, he looks rugged in all his gear. And uh, if, you could, if, if you saw somebody like this in there, well, I don't wanna, anyway. Uh, but, but he's got his hand in the universal military hand and arm signal for follow me. His arm straight over and he's, he's like he's going to start swimming. And it, it's the, same, the way you say follow me is the people behind you can see that you're saying let's go. We're going and, and everyone knows to follow. Now, are you surprised that the United States military's hand and arm signal for follow me is that? No, because that's what we say. Come on. <laughs> But that's what it is. And this is freeze. Everybody stop. You don't have to do it like that, like Arnold and Predator. You can freeze. Is it? Everybody behind you. And you know what the people behind you do? They do the same thing. You say, follow me. And they all do it. They all say, because the people behind can see it. You say, freeze. Everybody freezes. Everyone puts the hand on arm signal up for freeze. All right. Iron Mike standing there in the, in the symbol for follow me. That's the name of the statue at Fort Benning, Iron Mike. It's one of the greatest statues. That one and the Minuteman statue, wherever that thing is, that's got the, the Revolutionary War, like, uh, is it in Concord? Yeah. Yeah, that's my favorite. That's my favorite, like, uh, cultural icon of, of the United States, the Minuteman statue. But, but Iron Mike's going a, a close second with his follow me thing. Now, why is he able to be followed? Right? Because he's in front of everybody. He's the guy in front and he's saying, follow me. And in a military formation, the leader is not necessarily the first guy because that guy is called the point man. And he's, he's got a job that's different from directing everything. His job is exactly looking exactly what's in front, but pretty close to him is the leader at a squad level or even a platoon level, pretty close the leader and everyone's king off of him. And that's how it's supposed to be. That's called leadership. 
a little bit different from in, in mentality from the idea of the the 19th and 18th centuries where the non-commissioned officers would have sticks, long staffs, and that they would carry them in some instances, in some armies, behind the troops. <laughs> they were behind them, were behind you all the way, to make sure that they moved forward and they're pushing them and making sure they don't break ranks and run in the square formations. You ever see the, the, the video, the viral video of the Chinese... Uh, train getting loaded by the by the police or the the train stewards pushing people in and jamming them and packing them in and using using rods to stuff stuff people in the train i love living here anyway um it's very different when you're pushing people from when you're leading them now leadership is doing it yourself first but it's not just doing it and then nobody's following you. it's doing it and as jesus showed hey come with me inviting we're doing this. Come on. Now, if you feel like that's pushing, no, that's not pushing. Invitation is not pushing you. But leadership is, this is what we're doing. See how I'm doing it? Now come do it with me. I sometimes miss that second step, personally. I sometimes forget to say, hey, come on, we're doing this. But it's, it's not, y'all go ahead and go do. That's not the idea. To stand in front is the picture here of the good leader. And that is um, what the elders, the presbyteroi are supposed to be. The good leading elders are diplace, times, oxio, that's a hard one, oxiusthoson, that's what the century would say, of double honor are to be considered worthy. Diplace, Double teammates honor. Double honor. What's double honor? Well, I, we better figure that out. Because <laughs> I want it. No, what, what is double honor? Well, elder is, in this passage, remember we have the elder widows who are now part of the church ministry in terms of their, uh, their livelihood and they're committed to the work of the Lord. Elder widows. Um, and then, the, but they have to be qualified like elder men who are office of elder in terms of their conduct. And so now they're, they're, there's an office associated, not of authority over anyone, but just of, of identity with the church and its ministry. So now we're talking about the elders in office and already elder men are to be honored for their age, for their wisdom, whether they express it or not, they should be honored. But then what is double honor? Well, I wouldn't know except for verse uh, 18 is going to address something specific. But there are basically two views that have been said about this, that, that you really show extra deference to the elders who are ruling or leading well, the, the elders of office. And so Older men have an, a certain honor you associate them, but then the leaders of the church get more deference and respect. And I think that I, would, I might go that way um, if I didn't have verse 18, which says that the ox has got to be fed while he's working and the labor is worthy of his wages. So I believe you have double honor in the sense that Paul is saying that much like when he was able to go full-time in ministry because the offering came to him from the Macedonians, from the Thessalonians, the, the, there was an offering that let him go into full-time work in Ephesus where before he was uh, only on weekends, only on Saturday, could he go to the synagogue and preach. The offering with Timothy comes from Thessaloniki and he's able to go full-time. That's the idea. This is... You honor him as an elder, but then you also need to support the ministry of the gospel financially. So that's that second use of honor. So there's two things that are happening. The man who is elderly gets respect in the church and the elder of office who is studying the word to teach it is getting his living. And that's what he's talking about. And I, I think that because of verse, again, verse 18. They're to be considered worthy of this if they're good leaders, especially the ones who work hard 
and, pre- and word, literally word and teaching. Malista is especially hoi kopiontes, the kopiao. Ever take copious notes? We don't do anything else copiously. Actually, copious is an adjective in English from this Greek word, and it just means a lot. But in Greek, kopiao means to work, to, to, to strive, to work hard. And so this is somebody that's doing that, that's working hard in Lagos and in didaskalia, in word and teaching. Probably because it's an arthurus, the word logos here is to be taken as the word that they're saying, not the word of God, which they're working in. But it could be. If it is the word, the Bible, the word of God, then it's an arthurus because it's emphasizing its quality. But I think it's like they translate preaching and teaching. It's the word he's speaking. And word, even teaching would probably be better with the sense of use of Kai. So what about those elders that simply study? What about those guys that just study and they're academics and they, they do research and they publish journal articles or, and there's, you know, I want to do all this and they want to write books and, and four people will read it. And, um, but they're adding to the conversation. Well, He's talking about those that take from the fruits of their study and share it with the church family that work hard in word and teaching. I also want to point out that when the Apostle Paul thinks of what the Christian ministry looks like, he's always talking about teaching. He's very rarely saying we're going to appeal to your emotions, to your feelings, and, uh, and get you to go with the course of action we want you to take. He's always talking about didascalia, teaching, teaching, teaching. Uh, another word for didascalia is doctrine, but that word is an English word. You won't be surprised. That means teaching. It's the content, the, 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 the information that is communicated. So I, I mentioned earlier my struggle with the concept of the elder that's not a pastor by gift. Look what he says here. Good leading elders are of double honor to be considered worthy, especially those who work hard in word and teaching. You could make an argument. Well, there's the, there's the elder that doesn't work hard in the word and teaching. And then the elders that do. So there's your lay elder idea. That's where it would be justified. Is you've got guys on the elder board who are equal in what, what it turns out to be equal in voting authority to the pastor but they're not the pastor. They're not pastors by gift. They're just mature believers, mature men who help the pastor rule. And my thing about this is, is um, I'm not sure that that's what this verse is saying. It could be. But functionally, that's what, that's what we do anyway. The board of deacons here, we don't distinguish between those who are spiritually mature and able to teach and those who aren't. We don't think we have any deacons that aren't spiritually mature. So this is kind of how we operate. <clears throat> the good leading elders of double honor to be considered worthy. For the scripture says, now he's going to quote Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. The scripture says in Deuteronomy 25 4, an ox threshing, threshing you will not muzzle. And it's interesting how we bring out the Greek uh, the, the Hebrew from the Greek is um, to muzzle is in the future tense. It's a strong way of, of giving a prohibition, prohibition. You will not, Pasco, you will not collect $200, right? You, like to say it, just understand grammatically, if I say it in the future, this is not going to happen. That's one of the strongest ways I can issue a don't do that. Don't muzzle the ox as you will not, is actually in the Greek. You will not muzzle the ox. It's an interesting nuance. An ox threshing, you will not muzzle. What's the ox threshing? Well, this is an ox. It's a tractor in the ancient world who's doing uh, work with the food material. And he's, he's pulling uh, and, and striving and exercising and using all this energy and what he's working on is going to be the, the feed for all the animals. 
And in this case, if it's grain for people, it doesn't say grain, it says threshing. So don't put a muzzle on him so he can't eat while he's working. Take the muzzle off. And if he dips his face down and gets some of that grain that he's treading out, that's good because he needs it for his work. And so you can see there's a huge imbalance here that someone would put in their work and then not be a participant in the benefits of the work. That's a, that's a big no-no in the Bible. Think about this. This is one of the arguments in the Bible against slavery. There's a lot in the Bible about slavery. But, and in the New Testament, Paul says, do not sell yourself into slavery. If you find yourself as a slave, deal. Deal as God's free man with your circumstance. That's what he says. But it's interesting. I think one of the philosophical definitions of slavery is where you have your labor, your effort, and you don't get the benefit of it. Someone else takes that benefit and it's theirs. And you have no determination over the production that you generate. I think that's, to me, that's one of the key definitions of slavery. This is the way the framers thought when they said no taxation without representation. We're not slaves. We're British citizens and we're being treated like slaves. This is part of the argument, the justification for what they did. Think about what I'm saying. I own my brain and my body. And I mean, God ultimately does, but he's delegated these things to me. And I use my energy, time efforts to do what I do with my productivity. And so as a consequence of that effort, I should get the benefit of that productivity. And so when someone takes that from me, and now I'm just slaving, but I don't see the benefits of it. That's just horrible. It's just unthinkable. That's socialism. That's, that's, a, that's a, a graduated income tax. That's a confiscatory system of taxation. That, see, that this is the problem. And so, For all the bluster about racism today, it's interesting that it's all coming from Marxists who want to enslave everybody. Because then, we, you know, the, the goal, as John Lennon said, is no more possessions, no more property. Well, that's, that's slavery. You own what you produce. And if you have to give a portion of it to support the state, okay. It's part of your participation. But an ox... <clears throat> gets to have some of the benefit of what he's working in. And he, this is a big theme throughout the Old Testament. I'd like to run it down, but um, there are several passages in the law. Leviticus 19 has one. Deuteronomy, I forget exactly where, but actually Paul quotes Luke 10, I believe, verse 7. Worthy is the worker of his reward. Now, I don't know if you just noticed this. It may be the first time that I've ever seen Paul quote the New Testament. But this is a direct quote of Luke 10, 7. Worthy is the worker of his reward. By the way, my definition of slavery, where you don't get the benefits of your work, but someone else takes them from you, I would test it against the other definitions of slavery. Like you don't have any self-determination. I think that just said the same thing. Or someone tells you where you're going to sleep and where you're going to eat. And no, no, it's where someone owns you. But what does that mean functionally where someone owns you? It means that they own, own you in the sense that they determine what you do with your life. <clears throat> so verse 18, let's back out, zoom out a little bit. Verse 18 is saying you pay the person that works. You don't take work and then not pay. Now, if someone offers you a gift, then you, and they say, no, this is a gift, take it. You don't try to pay them for the gift because it's a gift. I had someone come try to help move, someone helped me move the other day. I didn't know him. He was a friend of a friend who was helping me move. He was helping his friend. And I tried to pay the stranger. And he was, oh no, get that out of here. I mean... I, you don't know me. He's like, I'm helping him. Just relax. <laughs> I'm helping my friend. It's nice to meet you. 
Very good friend, wasn't it? But if it's a gift, you don't need to pay the person for a gift. That's a, that's, that's a horrible thing. But if it's not a gift, if it's a, if it's a labor that the person's doing, then you, you support it. Preston City Bible Church is a great model of this for the Bible teaching churches that I know of. The, the country is full of churches that want pastors that work at Home Depot or UPS or, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with working with your hands for a living. But there is something that will be diminished in the effectiveness of the pastor if he's not full-time devoted to the word and prayer and Acts 6, so, 6 and so forth. So, so this is the principle, that one of the clear statements in the Bible about supporting those that teach the word. So let's go back to verse 17. He says, the good leading elders of double honor to be considered worthy, especially the ones who work hard in word and teaching. For the scripture says, an ox threshing you will not muzzle and worthy is the worker of his reward. So you support with remuneration those that support you. All right. We can now address what, what I called the whisper campaign. I never heard of this before, but I had a pastor friend recently say, they've started, y'all can pray for me. They've started a whisper campaign against me. Ever heard of that? Nobody ever heard of that? Okay, so it's not a, it's not. Well, here's what it is. Is it's, you begin a rumor. Well, I know, I heard that they, and there's no witness and there's no, explanation. It's just people start to get a negative impression of whoever the rumor has begun about. And this will be the pastor or the basketball coach or the band director or anybody in authority trying to do hard work and call people to the hard work that they're supposed to be doing with people that don't want to do it. <laughs> what does this look like? Against an elder, kata presbutero, against an elder, an accusation, do not receive. Welcome, embrace, don't uh, welcome an accusation against an elder. That's a pretty strong cover, right, for, for elders. Except, and here's where you would receive one, and you do have to do accountability with elders. Except, Upon two or three witnesses. So I'll say the, the, the testimony of two or three witnesses. So we're back in Deuteronomy with the ox and the, and the grain. And now we're doing two or three witnesses, God's system of jurisprudence in Israel, where you have more than one witness to whatever crime. Eyewitness testimony is the way of, uh, of God's governance. What if you don't have an eyewitness to a crime? Well, that one God is going to deal with. And he will. Let him. The Supreme Court of Heaven is always in session. So this is where you get this, this problem of attacking the leadership. And Paul says, not without more than one witness. Now, what's the accusation about? Well, he's going to say in verse 20, it's about personal sin, lifestyle sin. And so you can start rumors and try to get people to basically sour on the leadership. But Paul says, don't do that. Do everything out and open. Do everything above board. And um, I've been attacked mostly outside the church, but not very much at all. I've had a couple of attacks. The attacks that come at me are usually theological in nature. And their, their claims, like there's one guy that's really mad when we say that there's a future for national Israel and that the church is not Israel. And he's, he's a, a crusader against that idea. Had another attack uh, years ago that we were preaching a gospel other than the gospel of, of Christ because we said that the only thing you can do to receive eternal life is simply 
trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And he thought we were saying that, we were, that you couldn't put away your sins or feel sorry for your sins or all the other things that people try to tack on to faith alone and Christ alone. He thought we were not sufficiently adding to the gospel. And so one of the two parties was adding to the gospel, was, was preaching a different gospel. And I don't think it was us, but we had an attack about that. People get emotional about their theological, their, their, their methods of witnessing or their hobby horses for theology. And I have my theological convictions, absolutely. But we just try to stay in the text and summarize it as, uh, as best we can. And um, usually these attacks are one guy that's really upset about something. And, uh, but that's not, he's not talking about theology here. He's talking about sin, an, an accusation and in verse 20, those who are sinning, hamartano, the verb in a present um, participle, so who are sinning, those who are in the process of committing personal sin. Before all rebuke. Now, this is interesting. It matters where you put the kind of comma in this. Those who are sinning before all rebuke. <laughs> So if they're sitting privately where you're not seeing it, you don't rebuke those guys. That's not what it means, but it could mean that. Those who are sinning before all rebuke, rebuke them in front of everyone publicly, correct them so that the rest also will have fear. Uh-oh, we're supposed to echo Phobos. We're supposed to fear. Fear what? Personal sin. We're supposed to fear sin in the sense that we're fearing the Lord and we don't want to have these consequences that happen to the elder. Public correction, not a whisper campaign, not a, you know, did you know what he said, but a public rebuke. This is hard to get together. This is hard to do, but it, it's been done. I've seen it done. I've seen it needed to be done and not done because the pastor is powerful and multi-level, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He's, he's got a lot of social power. And so he's, he's got it leveraged. He's multi-level leveraged where nobody's going to be able to, to say, hey, you're off track. I know of a pastor that has two families in the same church. But it's okay, only one of the ladies is his wife. The mother of his other children is his wife, so husband of one wife. <laughs> Just to make sure that you don't think I'm talking about some other circumstance, some other church. This is what I'm talking about. There's a church I know of that, that this is going on. And uh, he's so leveraged, nobody can say anything. But it's so bad that I know it. Other people know it. It's known. I don't know these people, but I know about the situation. That's, that is radioactive. Anyway, um, we all have our, our shortcomings and, and we fail here and there and have to pick up and move on. But, um, but this, is, this is a public correction so that the culture is not that we're always doing this reign of terror. What are your sins? But when it becomes known there's a correction and it has to be it's necessarily public with the church family i mean we don't go out to hopeville pond where we do our baptisms and invite the the, the newspapers right we just it's in the, it's publicly in the family and then paul says you, you know this is really important i solemnly charge you before god and the lord jesus christ and the elect angels okay I, I charge you with, with all those present. This is one of those verses that says angels have a judicial function. They're witnesses to this charge he's giving Timothy. The angels of the church in Revelation 2 and 3, and then here, and then the angel with the flaming sword in Genesis chapter 4, uh, chapter, chapter 3. Angels have a judicial function. Turning someone over to Satan, removing them from the local church is part of this picture. But anyway, I, so, I solemnly charge you before God, the Lord Jesus Christ and his elect angels, that these things you keep watch over, you treco or um, you uh, tereo, you keep watch over these things without pre prejudice, without prejudging them, without picking your favorites and ruling in favor of them, doing nothing according to partiality. 
So you have, you have to do this. Um, and, and he's talking in context about the judgment or the, the, the rebuke of the elders. That it has to be, you have to do this, but you have to do this with fear and trembling. And do not lay hands hastily on anyone, thereby partaking in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. What is he talking about? He's talking about designating elders. The person invites you over for a meal, Timothy, and he's nice. You see his family seems to be really great. He's got a big smile. Just loves the, the Psalms. Because there's no Bible yet. There's Old Testament scriptures. He loves the Psalms. And he uh, has been uh, hearing from Paul for several years in, in Ephesus. And he's, he sat through Paul's first year in the school of Tyrannus. But then he didn't hear the second year in the, in the, the next six months. He just heard the first year. But he, he loves, loves the Lord. How do you know he told you? I just love the Lord. And it seems like we had such a great evening and really enjoyed him and a great sense of humor, really enjoyed being together. I had this great sense of this person who is, he ought to be an elder. And so after that good experience, I'm going to go and then say, okay, um, obviously guys, who are your elders? Obviously Bob is one. And Frank says, I'm not sure, I'm not sure Bob is one. What do you, what's the problem? I don't want to, I mean, I don't want, I don't want to gossip. I don't want to, I just, I'm not sure you want to designate him as an elder. Oh, come on. And see, at that moment, at that moment, Timothy is in danger of what Paul is talking about here in verse 22, because he doesn't know what Bob does on Friday nights, but Frank does. He doesn't know uh, the decisions that Bob has made with his children that have been disastrous, but Frank does. And so more importantly, God does. And so it's a process. You have to be very careful about who you designate an elder because if he doesn't rule his household well, he can't be an elder. He's not, he's not to, to rule the household of the Lord. And so Paul says you have a responsibility, Timothy, in designating elders. We call this today ordination. Those who do it are, existing elders and they designate that they acknowledge someone else as an elder, a, a pastor by spiritual gift and spiritual maturity. And so you don't lay hands in this ordination hastily on anyone, thereby partaking in the sins of others. Their sins will become yours, as it were, in a sense, you'll, you'll, you'll be fellowshipping in their sin, partaking in the sins of others. So um, he says the same thing in 1 Timothy 3, 6, when he says, the elder that you designate cannot be newly planted, a neophyte. He's got to have some time in grade before you designate him an elder. He has to be actually spiritually mature. That's 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. And why? Well, in there, it's because he is going to become conceited and fall into the snare of the devil. There's an arrogance problem from being the guy up front. So you don't take the young guy. He needs to grow and you got to really watch closely. Um, here he's saying the same thing, but it's the reason you don't lay hands hastily is because you, by telling people he's an elder, are going to participate in his sins if he, if he fails. And so we just, I'm scared to death of ordination. I am very hesitant to say you're ready to do it. I'm very hesitant. And, um, I'm, I will do it, but you just have to have a high bar. Well, this is what it looks like in the, in, in the letters of the Apostle Paul to treat elders, how we deal with them. And hopefully today you've seen, if nothing else, why we do what we do the way we do it. Well, you set aside a pastor and support me to be able to do this work with you. And um, why? we are accountable. I'm accountable to you. That's an interesting thought for a lot of people. When I first got here, someone told me, this is your, this is your horse. You ride it. You know, it's your church. You do whatever you want with it. Get in here, kick some doors, make it like you want it. And I said, well, the thing is I've been in the army and I learned how to come into a unit the wrong way, how to come into a unit the right way. And, uh, 
That's not how I lead. I don't come in kicking doors and saying, okay, the deacon board is uh, relieved of duty until we designate the new deacon board for my administration. I've heard churches doing that, pastors doing that. Never will I do that because I believe in a principle of accountability from this passage. Who is going to rebuke the elders? The other elders or the, the church? That's, what, that's how it's going to be. And so what we have to do, beloved, is be accountable. And the pastor or the pastoral candidate or whoever who does not consider himself accountable to the church, because I'm in charge, I'm the leader, and therefore doesn't see his necessity to be humble and accountable to the people, is, is completely confused and, and, and needs to be nowhere near a pulpit. And, that, and, and the problems that I have observed with pastors that go, that go bad, it's a problem generally of accountability or it's a lack of study or it's, some, it's a work ethic thing or an accountability problem. And then we could talk about gold and, and girls and glory, the three things that pastors fall. But I'm talking about where it's not those things, but it's like something like he doesn't study like he needs to or he's not accountable as he should be. And I try to be all those things. And I fail at times and try to succeed generally. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel and for the way you've organized the local church around these expectations. And we thank you that the goal of our instruction is very clearly laid out, love from a pure heart. Father, we thank you for the elders and pastors who have come before us on whose shoulders we have the privilege of standing. We could never earn or deserve the right that you've given us, the privilege you've given us in your son to speak for you. Father, you haven't just given it to the pastors. Every one of us is capable of opening our mouths to speak your word to a world that desperately needs it. Father, I ask that we would all disciple up, all be equipped, let this ministry equip every one of us to express your love to a world that has no idea of it, that ridicules you, ridicules your son's atonement, the sacrifice for our sins, but that desperately needs these truths. Father, let us be ready with the word and unafraid of any persecution as a consequence. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.